Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight we hear the wonderful story of how a PEI writer turned to Facebook to share her love of cabbage and help out a local farm that found itself with a huge surplus of cabbage at the height of the pandemic. Well, that turned into a cabbage cookbook that was then mentioned in the New York Times, and suddenly the vegetable and the book became a very hot commodity. Sorry seems to be the hardest word, or at least so the song goes, but we find out why a good apology is so effective and so appreciated by both the person offering it and the one receiving it, and why bad apologies can do the very opposite. So how do you do it right? We find out. But first, the special rapporteur tasked with looking into allegations of foreign interference into the 2019 and 2021 federal elections delivered his first report today. David Johnston says he could find no evidence that the Liberal government negligently failed to act on intelligence advice or recommendations and said there is no need for a public inquiry. But the opposition has called his impartiality into question and all opposition leaders say a public inquiry is the only answer. So why won't one be held? And will Canadians trust that Johnston's advice is correct? A very real drama unfolding in Ottawa today. Whether it's good or bad, I'll leave that up to you. Special Rapporteur David Johnston is recommending hearings on the issue of foreign interference in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections, but is advising against a public inquiry. You'll remember that he was tasked with this several months ago after all these allegations emerged, mostly in the Globe and Mail and on Global News as well, that uh, there had been a coordinated effort uh, by China, by Beijing, uh, to interfere in both those elections, including funding or sort of finding ways around funding uh, certain candidates in different ridings, uh, wanting the Liberals to win a minority government, uh, targeting any MP, didn't matter what political party they were with, targeting anyone who they felt was uh, was a threat to their interests. And so David Johnston looked into this. He released his first report today. And um, what he points to, really, is serious shortcomings in how intelligence from security agencies was communicated to government. I have found no examples of ministers, the prime minister, or their offices knowingly or negligently failing to act on intelligence, advice, or recommendations on the issues I have investigated related to the 2019 and 2021 elections. However, I did find that there are significant and unacceptable gaps in the machinery of government. Gaps in the machinery of government. That sounds like a report word, right? I mean, what it boils down to is that there was a lot made of who knew what when, right? So there were these allegations that somehow Beijing was meddling in things and that did the, did the Liberal government know about it? Were they ignoring it because it was helping them? Well, according to David Johnston, and we'll get into arguments about his impartiality after this, but uh, he says no, that in fact what had happened here was there was a breakdown. Uh, one of the most glaring examples, if you can believe it, is um, CSIS sent a note to the then Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair, his Chief of Staff and his Deputy Minister in May of 2021, warning them that there was intelligence that China intended to target Conservative MP Michael Chong, another MP whose name we do not know, and their families uh, in China. In that event, apparently neither the minister nor his chief of staff received the note because they did not have access to the top secret network email on which it was sent. In other words, they couldn't access it, which seems simply and simply unbelievable. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev has spoken out about this whole process since the beginning. He doesn't think David Johnston is at all impartial, and he was not surprised that uh, Johnston recommended against a public inquiry into all of this. We see today that his ski buddy, cottage neighbor, family friend, 
and member of the Beijing-financed Trudeau Foundation, came out and did exactly what I predicted, help Trudeau cover up uh, the influence by Beijing in our democracy. We know that Beijing interfered in two elections to help Trudeau win. Now, not not much of that is whatsoever true, by the way. I mean, it's all it's all true to some extent, but it's polyev. So in other words, it's in, in ridiculously uh, partisan. Uh, they're not ski buddies, but there is questions about his impartiality. We'll get to those in a second. Johnson says, of course, his integrity is fine. He calls any accusations against it baseless and troubling. And the prime minister came out defending David Johnston and his findings again today. Quite frankly, the quality and the caliber, not just of his decades of extraordinary service to this country, but the quality and caliber of the report he's put forward leaves me in total confidence in his ability to continue to do this important work for Canadians. So what you have here is two things going on. You have the foreign interference issue, which is a very important one, and you have the politics, which in many ways is also very important. Uh, to help sort of sort this all out is Christian Luprecht. He's a professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University. He's a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, which seems appropriate for our conversation tonight. Christian, welcome back. Thank you. Good evening, Ben. My pleasure. So any surprise at all? I mean, I think a lot of people were expecting something like a public inquiry, and he came out and said no for reasons that I think uh, were not all that surprising. But wow, the backlash already. I think uh, uh, David Johnston missed a key opportunity at the outset, which was to ask the prime minister to ensure that if he is a supposedly independent rapporteur, that he has the imprimatur of the agreement of the opposition to have him write this report. And so basically right. have a consensus with the opposition on the person that the prime minister appoints by virtue of not having sought uh, that uh, consensus and knowing his own background, both in terms of the Sinophile relations that date with David Johnston that date back some 50 years in his case, um, as well as the uh, relations, of course, uh, with the Trudeau family and other elements uh, of the Laurentian elites. Uh, I think uh, David Johnston uh, would have anticipated that uh, it would have been it would be very difficult for the opposition parties, uh, and uh, as a result for the Canadians that uh, uh, that support the opposition parties as opposed to the government to see him as an impartial arbiter uh, in this uh, very divisive yet important issue for our democracy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to take issue with what Pierre Polyev was saying, calling him a ski buddy and the Trudeau, you know, the Beijing funded Trudeau Foundation. It's all that's all a bit a bit a bit, you know, it's a bit exaggerated. But he but there is a, there is elements of truth to everything that he was talking about. Yeah, and look, I mean, if if I'd have to grade this report, um, it probably in my second year social science methods course, it would not pass. Um, the, the, the report is littered with confirmation bias. Um, there is no uh, evidence that David Johnston considered the full universe of evidence available. And the fact that he talked to the party that ultimately is the most affected by the allegations, that is to say the Conservative Party, as the very last interlocutors uh, among the people that he conferred is, you would normally think that in this type of investigations, if you think of the opposition in general and the conservatives in particular seeing themselves as the victim here, 
um, you know, if this was a police investigation, you would talk to the victim first, you would get their statements, and then you would see to what extent their statements corroborate with the evidence. It appears that David Johnston um, talked to uh, members of uh, the government, the prime minister's office, and the civil service, all of whom, of course, uh, have a considerable stake in the outcomes of the report in terms of their own reputations um, and uh, their own prospects for re-election if you're the government, and then talking to the conservatives last. Uh, but that mirrors, of course, also the approach taken by Morris Rosenberg that claimed that he talked to all the opposition parties and where, of course, Aaron Hotul has come out flat out in his own blog in a statement and said that it was simply untrue, the claims that, uh, uh, that Morris Rosenberg made in his report. And so, again, right. it leaves us some doubt about whether in terms of method um, the report passes the sort of muster uh, that the prime minister ascribes to him. And so again, you know, I think David Joss is a very smart man. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's led two distinguished universities. Uh, but at the same time, you would think that you would want to convince uh, those calling for a public inquiry that his method is sounder uh, than what he has put across. And we can only hope that by the time the final report appears in November, uh, or in, sometime in the fall, that uh, his method will be more robust than what he has put on the table today. Christian Luprecht is with us this half hour. We're talking about David Johnston, the special rapporteur appointed by the government, his first report into allegations of foreign interference in our political processes was released today and perhaps surprisingly no public inquiry everyone just about everyone you read had been saying what we need here is a public inquiry he says we can't have one because too much of the information involved is is secret so therefore it would, there would be no point uh, but christian when you look at this it feels like the act of having the inquiry itself would have been the kind of sunlight and transparency that this issue needs. Not having one, I feel like it just keeps it hidden behind the screen even more. And, you know, sort of, the, trust me, I saw this and, you know, what you read, there's no story here is sort of what David Johnson's saying. It's going to be a, it's going to be a hard sell on all fronts. Yeah, I think so. Look, the prime minister could have picked a judge, for instance, with extensive national security background uh, that had previously been security cleared and knows the community and how it operates. Uh, David Johnston, for all his accomplishments, um, is not an expert in national security. And so while he's obviously a quick study based on this report, uh, I think there's uh, a lot that David Johnston would likely not have been able to learn about a community uh, that operates somewhat differently from many other government departments. But in light of that, it is all the more telling that he uh, points to a significant breakdown in terms of uh, uh, the machinery of government, as he calls it. Uh, this is significant because, of course, in the Westminster parliamentary system, uh, the principle of ministerial responsibility means that the minister in charge of that department, uh, he, she, they ultimately are responsible for what happens in their department. And so certainly, I think uh, the report suggests that the prime minister needs to take ownership for significant failings and shortcomings within his own department, it would appear the Privy Council Office, uh, 
and its ability to communicate with other elements of government uh, when it comes to security intelligence. But to simply point the finger there again uh, is a bit uh, is is a bit doubtful because that is of course the narrative that the government has for years been putting out every time something goes wrong that it's ultimately the civil services fault. And I think the David Johnston could have done more to point out that our constitutional principles would require the prime minister to take more ownership here of his department and responsibility uh, than the prime minister has so far been willing to do. Yeah, because if you read between the lines in this, he does say that ultimately things were not communicated properly. But whose responsibility is that? I mean, if you know, and, and you know, politicians have been warned for years about the threat of foreign interference, whether it be China or Russia or whomever, uh, to not even sort of, you just wonder where it all fell apart. And it's hard when you read between the lines, because there's lots of areas where he sort of points out that things were, in fact, you know, things were quite bad. And yet he never, he never sort of associates any blame with it, which is kind of odd. Yeah, I think one of the curiosities, again, that I think uh, he could have, I think, pointed more of a finger to is this is arguably the most centralized prime minister's office this country has ever had under any government uh, in terms of decision making and in terms of communications. Um, and yet, when things go wrong in government, especially in this government, it seems it is everybody's fault, with the exception of the prime minister and his office. And so I think the report could have pointed out that you can't have it both ways. If you're going to centralize all the decision making, and if your chief of staff comes out and says that you have a prime minister who sees everything, who knows everything, who's fully aware of everything, then we can't turn around and then say, well, but in, the, in this one instance only, somehow it wasn't at all the prime minister's fault because he's he wasn't apprised of what was going on. So I think, again, I think there would have been an opportunity here for the cognitive dissonance uh, to be stressed more by David Johnson than he has, which I think, again, leaves the impression uh, that perhaps the narrative was softened uh, in a way that uh, would play into the government's hands, whether that is by design or by consequence, I suppose uh, we will never uh, we will never know. Uh, but know, the no. report raises important questions. It does. I mean, I saw that it got quite a bit of foreign coverage. The BBC was reporting on it. What do you think allies are looking? I mean, you know, we're part of the Five Eyes. Allies are looking at this, obviously. Uh, what do you think our reputation is here? Because it, it seems like if emails aren't getting to the public safety minister and I'm sitting in another Five Eyes nation, I'm thinking, what's going on? What's going on? Well, Canada? look, we didn't look that credible on the security intelligence, particularly on the defense file before this all broke. So this certainly isn't helping Canada's credibility with its allies. And certainly the public inquiry, allies would have had, um, as the community in Canada, the security intelligence community would have had concerns about uh, methods and sources that might have come to the fore. But the trade-off here is, of course, that uh, Mr. Johnson calls quite clearly for uh, the leaker to be identified and to be prosecuted. And of course, as I had suggested, the trade-off the prime minister could have offered is we're going to have a public inquiry in return the leaks have to stop so that we can have an independent and transparent conversation about what transpired here and that clearly that this is not a grand bargain that uh, uh, that David Johnson felt that he needed to take certainly there will be think on the one hand some relief by our allies that uh, uh, there won't be a public inquiry and so not sort of the concerns about possible sources and methods being divulged. At the same time, I think uh, allies also looking at this and going that uh, there's certainly not a, a desire by the government 
to take concerted action on this matter, let alone concerted action before the next election, uh, given that the prime minister has now called for by-elections under the current um, framework. It also means the prime minister isn't too troubled uh, going forward. Um, And I think as long as our opposition parties are concerned about potential foreign meddling, uh, that is going to delegitimize our democratic institutions and our electoral process. Right, which seems to have not uh, not abated at all with this report. Christian Lubrecht, as always, thank you. My pleasure, Ben. Have a good evening. One person who would have been watching closely as a real-life drama unfolded in Ottawa today is my next guest, uh, Kenny Chu, special rapporteur David Johnson, of course, recommending against a public inquiry into those allegations of foreign interference in the 2019 and 2021 elections. Here's what he had to say about why he thinks a public inquiry is not necessary. In some cases, the materials I reviewed tell a very different story than what has been reported to date. Foreign interference is not usually embodied in discrete, one-off pieces of intelligence. It cannot be dealt with on a one-off, look-what-I-found basis. This has often been the story that's emerged from the government, at least, that you that you know, single little pieces of, of intelligence info don't tell the whole story. They're just, you know, strokes that you don't see the broad picture. That being said, we've seen a lot of strokes. I mean, we've seen a lot of a lot of this picture has been painted for us. And one of the ones that's been the most compelling over time is the story of Kenny Chu, who was running for re-election in 2021 in uh Steeds and Richmond East, an area just uh, near near Vancouver or in the suburb of Richmond. Um, and he had introduced a or introduced in private, private members bill to bring in a foreign interference registry and of course Beijing was not happy about it at all and during that 2021 campaign there was a lot of very negative stuff on Chinese social media of course it's a it's a riding with a huge Chinese population Chinese speaking population Mandarin speaking population um, and there was a lot of really negative stuff written about about that first of all that proposal and about the candidate himself in fact so much so that it's mentioned specifically in this Johnston report today and uh, the former MP for Steve's and Richmond East, Kenny Chu, joins me now. Kenny, thanks for your time tonight. Well, Ben, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's interesting the uh, the introduction that you have uh, about uh, horrible movies, and it's almost like uh, we're watching episodes of that, uh, been watching that. <laughs> Yeah, tell me about that because I would I thought of you today when you were watching this because you you stand in a particularly uh, you, you stand in a unique spot on this one. Uh, first of all, what did you make of the recommendations? Just largely no public inquiry, uh, communications breakdowns. What did you make of that? Well, I, I think I want to give uh, former Governor General uh, Mr. Johnson a benefit of doubt. Uh, I, I I still yet to uh, study what exactly he meant by uh, public. Um, hearings versus public inquiry, the difference right. of that. The bottom line is, I think, for just like most Canadians, we want to get to the bottom of it. It's after episode after episode after episode, you know, seasons after season. We've seen enough of this show that uh, tells Canadians how bad the foreign interference has been, uh, you know, com- coming from, you know, 2019 federal elections. There are 11 candidates. And then we heard about, uh, you know, Trudeau Foundation being used as a means to get close to the, the Trudeau liberal yeah. government yeah. Uh, to for an interference in 2021 election. And then the MPs such as uh, Michael Chong, uh, Jenny Kwan, and Aaron O'Toole's families being, um, uh, you know, coerced and all that. 
Uh, and finally, it, it climaxed to to the expulsion of uh, Chinese diplomats, something that we haven't done for decades. And then right. they, you know, a tit for tat. So we want to get to the bottom of this. These are things that what we've learned from a whistleblower in the national security intelligence uh, you know, circle. What have we not known? What have we not found out yet? Uh, how far, how deep, how wide this interference has been? I think these are what Canadian wants to find out. And, you know, if, if a public hearing would be able to do that, then yeah, I think a lot of the opposition leaders, former CSIS directors would have called for that. And we have hearings after hearings after hearings in in the House of Commons committees and SCCOP and all that. Uh, I think what, what Canadian wants today is something that will actually get to the bottom of this. This is number one. The second uh, point I think most Canadians are interested to find out is uh, it, has there been a governmental uh, omission or negligence that's been involved? Uh, yeah. There has to be a political uh, accountability uh, involved. Either, well, I, either the- yeah, I, I guess what David Johnson was saying today is what he found is that that was not the case, that there, were, there were, hadn't seemed to be any warnings that were ignored. But I think what your case exemplifies, uh, Kenny, always, is how... Is how it, it is not an easy subject to figure out, you know, what happened to you in 2021? Because, of course, David Johnson pointed out that he couldn't find any evidence that it was state-sponsored, right? But all of a sudden, the one the tools used to communicate with a lot of your voters in the language they speak started to become very negative about you, even after you'd won the previous time around. Um, and, and that might be, I mean, I, I guess... When we look at this, must, the question must be, what do we need to do to make sure that the diaspora is protected, that there's no backlash, obviously, but also that we better understand how these influence operations work? Because I think that's where there's a real knowledge gap amongst many people is how do they work? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, my constituents, uh, it was just 22 months. And for most of that 22 months, it's like it's like a bad movie. It's like a pandemic bad movie. A lot of people just basically sleep through it. And and within that 22 months, something has flipped and something has changed. Uh, many people were manipulated, and uh, they they were told that that myself being born a Chinese, uh, I speak both Mandarin and Cantonese, read and write Chinese that I, I am actually a Chinese hater, that I, right. uh, you know, I'm a white supremacist, that I, you know, my party, my leader is anti-China Chinese. So there has been, you know, the, the governor general characterized it as uh, misinformation. I would argue yeah. that it is disinformation, that is, it's completely falsified uh, information with a purpose. And so we need to get to the bottom of this for my constituents' sake. Uh, you know, how do we prevent them from being manipulated and and, mis- and, and used by a foreign power? Uh, you yeah. know, in, in the next time, what about the other diaspora communities? Uh, you know, there, there's definitely, for example, the Persian uh, Iranian communities. How do we, right, which you would know in Vancouver for sure. Yeah. Exactly. And then there's also South Asian communities uh, all over in Toronto area, right? So how do we protect these diaspora communities? That's something that we think the public inquiry would be able to find out, get to the bottom, and then provide a recommendation. 
Now, I know that, you know, there was another report that came out last week from the Special Committee on the Canada-People's Republic of China relationship that I think you spoke to, Michael Chong's part of that as well. So it's, this is not the only thing that's going on. Uh, this Johnston special rapporteur process is not the only thing going on looking into this. But do you feel any more any more confident in our ability to stop foreign interference tonight than you did this morning before you saw this or read about this report? Um, ben, if, if studies, <laughs> studies after studies and reports after reports will be able to stop foreign interference, I think it will be effective. But you and I both know the, the, the seriousness of the matter uh, and, and the cold hard facts is that no, it would not be. In fact, to the contrary, unfortunately, uh, if we don't enact, if we don't do anything and we set the bar so high that we have to find a smoking gun with a fingerprint and then we will call it. Uh, you know, for interference, and then we will do something about it. If that's the bar we set so high, uh, then all these ambitious regimes will see it, and they realize that, aha, that's that's the bar. That's that's all we have to operate under that, and then we will be able to conduct our business uh, completely transparently. That's not that's not how we want to present Canada internationally. No, and I guess as a last question, just I mean, for for people in the diaspora tonight, do you do you feel more protected than you did? You know, do you, do you feel like there is enough protection there against those who would who would coerce? Well, the first thing that I thought uh, when I was a uh, a member of Parliament is to uh, propose a uh, foreign interference registry act. And that's my right. private mem- member's bill. That that's been completely mischaracterized. Um, but judging on the, the government's speed, the speed of government, uh, it looks like that uh, it's going to take a long time for that to happen. And also, you know, the, the uh, repertoire now comes up with a recommendation that uh, he's proposing that we have a hearings. Uh, by the way, this is only the first report that he's tabled. I don't know how mm-hmm. many ta- uh, reports he's going to table. So one by more, the time I think, actually one final, yeah. mm-hmm. conduct the hearing, uh, we, we will take a long time to see what's the result of the hearings and if there is any recommendation, and then the government to enact. So the short answer to your is no. Unfortunately, the many people, many Canadians have voiced their concerns and fear uh, that uh, many members of their community has experienced. doesn't matter whether it's uh, Uyghur Muslims, or Falun Gong practitioners, even the LGBTQ communities, they, they are being pers- persecuted in China, but also in our land of freedom in Canada here, uh, they are being coerced and, and threatened. And it looks like the government, uh, it doesn't seem to be uh, willing to act expeditiously, and that's, that's a cause for concern and worry. Well, Kenny, as always, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Ben, for having me. The big news today out of Ottawa, David Johnston, the special rapporteur named by the government to look into allegations of foreign interference in our electoral process, 2019 and 2021 specifically, came out today and found there were some serious breakdowns, but uh, no public inquiry. He thinks it's not going to be worth it because of the amount of classified information that would have to be shared. Uh, the official opposition, Pierre Polyev, not impressed. Uh, the head of the NDP, the leader of the NDP, saying they won't trigger an election over it, but they still want an inquiry. Would an inquiry make sense here? We thought we'd ask Ed Ratushny. He's an emeritus professor of law at the University of Ottawa and author of The Conduct of Public Inquiries, the book on it all, Law, Policy, and Practice. Uh, Ed Ratushny, thank you. 
Oh, pleasure to be here. You know, we often throw around the term public inquiry, I think, without fully understanding what that entails. And I think we're all guilty of it. When you look at the set of circumstances here, and I think what David Johnston is saying is that so much of what is needed to make sense of of what's out there is classified, that you can't actually have a real and proper public inquiry because too much of the information would have to be kept under wraps. Does that ring true to you? Yes, it does. The idea of a public inquiry is very good. And I mean, the reasons for it of uh, uh, making everything wide open and allowing people to uh, follow the inquiry and to see what's happening and learn why and to cross-examine people. It's about a, a wide open operation. And that's the whole reason for it. The only reason, really, It's to bring the public into weighing the evidence, hearing things, drawing their own uh, conclusions, as well as being told what the commissioners have decided when they make their final report. It could be done, but it would be very awkward because very often there would be when certain questions are asked, there will be people saying, oh, no, there's privilege against that. The government has a, a automatic privilege that's respected in law. We can't go there. In addition to the specific legal aspects, uh, the terms of reference are going to have to be written because that's the corral of what the commission can stay within and has to stay within. And that would be very, very difficult because it's going to cross some of those situations. And quite apart from the legal ones, there are some practical ones. In the the world of uh, spies and uh, secrets and uh, dictators and all kinds of uh, these things that come into play here, there are going to be some problems with Canada being okay with their colleagues, with the countries that they work with, because there's a lot of sharing of uh, information in this area and uh, in terms of uh, national security and generally security in in the world, in some parts of the world. Our partners in this, the United States, Australia, other countries are saying, what the heck are they doing? How can they be putting all this out in public? We're just working on that. We're just trying to catch them dead on this or we're going to get some very important information or yeah, agreed. And yet, when I think back to some of the inquiries I was mentioning, I covered there in the inquiry, there was a lot about failure of intelligence. Now, I know this went back many, many years at the time, but there was certainly intelligence information being released as part of that inquiry. What would make this one different? I mean, I understand the information sharing would make it different uh, with the five eyes and so on. Uh, but what else would make this one different? I suppose it's active, right? It's happening. But still, it, it, I guess it sort of begs the question, where would, why couldn't they find some sort of path to, to having a real public inquiry here? Well, they could. They, they, they could try to do it. But if, if it re- requires so many things that can't be dealt with and we get to a certain point and that's the point, oh, we can't go any further, that's not going to make the public satisfied. It's going to have a, an opposite consequence, I think. I think that's the problem. It can be done, but it won't be very pretty. No. And not very cheap either, right, as a rule. That's very true. It's uh, the prime minister asking for this report to be made 
was a way of the prime minister putting the decision on someone else rather than the government. Because ordinarily, the government would uh, have to take all responsibility for it. And by passing it on, they can say, well, uh, you know, after all, this uh, important, uh, trustworthy person uh, said we shouldn't do it, and there's going to be another. And he also added a little uh, way of continuing this and looking at other things about how the government could be much more open to the public. I, that was a bit of a surprise to me. Just because he's planning on on doing more. I mean, I suppose they had to, he had to find, there's been such an outcry for a public inquiry here from everybody other than from within the Liberal Party. I mean, the, all the opposition parties are all calling for one, that he had to, I guess, create something that had some semblance of a public forum to it. Yeah, that's true. And uh, public inquiries are very political in that governments usually don't want to have a public inquiry. There's too much that can be given to the public that perhaps government isn't very proud of, but doesn't want to be getting into it. And if uh, they'll always resist until the pressure and good journalists like you uh, put the heat on, that's the only time we, we have public inquiries. Because we all remember the Gomery Inquiry. I mean, we remember some of the more famous inquiries, and you know many of them, uh, some of the more famous inquiries and just how much damage they've done to the government in power, whether it be provincial, municipal, or federal. That's very true. And that reminds me of the other inquiry where you may recall uh, it was during the uh, recent uh, conservative government right. that this inquiry was going on, but it had a lot of uh, awkward aspects when it came to Mr. Mulroney. The Airbus yeah. affair, yes, indeed. Airbus, absolutely. Mm. Now, there's a case where this very same person uh, was asked, uh, our former governor general was asked to uh, help the government do the terms of reference for, for this inquiry, where it was really potentially dangerous for the conservative government, because Mulroney, uh, I wouldn't say that... Uh, would have found a lot of uh, problems with what he'd been doing. But there's a good chance that it could have, uh, as you as you suggested, it could have been very difficult for the government of that day to survive getting into the details of that. The same person who, was doing, who, who did this report said, well, you know, we really don't have to go there. It's not really important that the inquiry go into that area. So the inquiry looked into a broad aspect of what was going on, a lot of, on in a lot of ways, but just carved out that little area of the uh, Airbus, and uh, they got away with it. Yeah. Interesting it would be David Joss. I know he's come under a lot of criticism for that over the years. Well, Edward Tushney, thank you so much for your insight on this. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. Nice talking to you. I have found no examples of ministers, the prime minister, or their offices knowingly or negligently failing to act on intelligence, advice, or recommendations on the issues I have investigated related to the 2019 and 2021 elections. However, I did find that there are significant and unacceptable gaps in the machinery of government. 
significant and unacceptable gaps in the machinery of government. Try saying that 20 times in a row. I don't know what, quite what that means. All it sounds like is that somehow things fell apart. And who's responsible for that? We were talking about that in the last hour. What happened to the concept of ministerial responsibility? What happened to the concept of governments taking ownership of these things when things go wrong, of apologizing, for instance? Uh, but that's what we were told today by the special rapporteur, David Johnston. Um, the blame seems to lie from some pretty glaring screw-ups in Ottawa um, in those allegations of foreign interference in our politics with communications, essentially that people weren't seeing what they were supposed to see, or according to those leaks, we've been seeing those articles in the Globe and Mail and on Global News, that all those things never made it up to the top, and they didn't see them or didn't know about them, apparently, or so the story goes. Uh, so what would be the right solution to fixing that, right? I would think it would be some form of inquiry. And I, I don't say that because the inquiry would necessarily be perfect because of all the amount of information here that's classified. It would not be a clean inquiry because so much would have to be kept out of the public eye. But holding a public inquiry with a justice who was seen to be a, beyond reproach, who had experience in national security, would be a really good thing, I think, here. Because what's happened, and I think Bryce uh, in Southern Ontario, his text pretty much spells this out. Uh, it won't be thorough, he says. Results are bought and paid for. Nothing to see here. Results will only be available after the elections, right? So in other words, people, some people have just written this off and said, okay, the whole exercise is is tainted. It's partisan. Let's just forget about it. And both sides are playing some real partisan hardball here, by the way. And the Conservatives have been equally aggressive in this sort of tearing apart David Johnston. Now, he has issues. I agree. He should probably walk away from this one. Um, but it's just gotten nasty. Meanwhile, the, the Liberals look like they're protecting something that they just don't want to talk about, right? I mean, that's what's happened here. They could have easily said, you know what? Thank you, David Johnston. Let's call that inquiry anyway. Let's do that because why not? It seems like that's what Canadians want to see. That's what will restore faith in this whole process. But they didn't do that today. They simply said, thank you, David Johnston, for saying no inquiry is needed. We said we would bank on, we would accept your recommendations, and therefore we do. Um, but part of the thing that I found really fascinating with all this is this idea of communication breakdown, right? There was one example here that was quite telling. So according to the report, um, one of the most flagrant of these communication breakdowns was then Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair, his chief of staff and his deputy minister apparently received a, were sent a note by the Canadian, by CSIS in May of 2021, warning that there was intelligence that China intended to target amongst a few conservative MP Michael Chong. You may know this story. It's been all over the papers of late that Michael Chong was apparently the subject of some chatter you know, between Chinese officials about targeting his family back in Hong Kong because of some of his political activity in this country. Unacceptable, by the way. Absolutely unacceptable. But apparently that note was never seen by the minister nor his chief of staff because they didn't have access to the top secret network email on which it was sent. In other words, they didn't see the email because they couldn't. But that to me, it just seems so ridiculous. How can that be? Like I get clearances and so on, but how can that be? So we thought we'd look into this with someone who knows something about this stuff. Uh, Artur Wilczynski is a former director general of intelligence and former assistant deputy minister of the Canadian security, security establishment and a senior fellow now at the University of Ottawa. He's also Canada's former ambassador to Norway. Uh, Artur, thank you, for, thank you for your time. Welcome back. Thanks for having me on again. I guess one of the more interesting things that came out today, we could talk about the substance of the Johnston report first before we talk about the politics, but this idea, and you've pointed out for a very long time, that somehow the system is broken, that things that should be coming from the intelligence community and being seen by the decision makers is not making it. Did that ring true to you? 
Absolutely. In fact, it's been something that I think has been a, a strategic weakness of Canada's intelligence community for a long time. And it's the whole question of, of we invest a lot of time, energy in collecting the intelligence. What we don't invest uh, enough in, in my, in my opinion, is that connective tissue to ensure that the collectors of, of intelligence get their products in a timely way to those consumers who can then make decisions in the national interest. And we, I think that, that one of the things that Mr. Johnson spoke about today is precisely that uh, that connective tissue uh, being weak. And because that's weak, I think it affects the ability of the Canadian uh, government to make those informed decisions that we need. It's and, and, and again, we could talk about every facet of this, but it's interesting then to read the leaker's anger with where this intelligence has not been going in that light, through that prism, to think yeah. it's not reaching who it's supposed to reach, therefore decisions are not being made. Now, that's not a very satisfactory answer to any of this, but it seems at least plausible. It is plausible. And again, like, you know, some of the specifics that have come out, uh, for example, the the discussions that existed, uh, you know, a few a few weeks ago about uh, Michael Chong and the assessment that should have made its way from the service through the National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the PM. The reality is that, that there are thousands of pieces of intelligence that are, that, that are bouncing around the system, making sure that the, the right clients, the right consumers of that intelligence get it at the right time is one of the fundamental challenges. Was it out there? Yes. Uh, was it identified as something really relevant that should have been brought to the political attention? Probably not. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, there's, I guess there's also different information is taken seriously uh, depending where it came from uh, you hear words like chatter and so on i mean it's hard for us outside to i think to figure out what matters at the time it's very easy in hindsight obviously so again and this is where mr johnson was also absolutely correct in his assessment is that individual pieces of intelligence in and of themselves just are are you know are little tiny dots on a broader picture they're pixels and you need to actually have quite a few of them and then have somebody stand back recognizing that the picture isn't complete and do an analysis and, and, and draw some conclusions for it. So when individual pixels or intelligence reports make their way out in the public domain without that context, or only look through the lens of a collector without the analysis and assessment that is re you know, required, it's possible to draw wrong conclusions or, or make assumptions about, uh, about what that intelligence means that are, are incorrect. And again, this is why I think one of one of the things I've been talking about for a while is the importance to build an intelligence culture in Canada, where consumers of intelligence have a lot more insight and understanding about how to actually use the information that is being shared with them. And it's also important, for, I think, for collectors, folks like uh, my former colleagues at CSE and CSIS, to have a better understanding of how intelligence information might be used by those consumers. So how does this piece of highly classified information fit into that broader information ecosystem that a policymaker needs to, uh, needs to manage to make decisions? And Intel is just one vector of information. And uh, we need to recognize that, you know, these are complex information ecosystems. We need that broader picture to make rightful decisions. Yeah. I, again, I don't think it's meant to bring comfort that there was this kind of communications breakdown, but you can imagine with just the sheer volume of information being collected. I, I, I guess with the area where I often find it puzzling is, is I, I guess there is no way or there doesn't seem to have been a way to sort of flag these things and say this is of crucial importance, or at least there could have been disagreements, I guess, within the same intelligence community about what, what was vital and what wasn't. And this all gets lost as it goes up the ladder. 
the consumers of national security of, of intelligence have a lot of folks that are competing for their time, particularly once you get up to that senior official and political level, right? So the, the amount of time that you have as an intelligence official, uh, senior level, with the with the political class is limited, and you have to pick and choose very carefully what you're going to share and why you're going to share it, because folks don't have a lot of time, and that's just the reality. So the issue is like, how do we make sure that we have a good understanding of what the needs are of, of various consumers of, of intelligence? And then we have the infrastructure required to serve those needs so that when a piece of intelligence is out there, it's not, we don't need leave it up to the clients to go searching through databases or like, you know, reams of paper. That's inefficient. And it's actually, you know, quite frankly, dangerous in my opinion. We need a, a cohort of support to intelligence uh, consumers that can be curators of information and intelligence that can collate it in an appropriate way and then share it with uh, with those consumers in a timely fashion and in a format that they actually want to consume. And this is still a, a challenge within national security, particularly when you have huge volumes uh, of intel that's available that Canada generates, but that we also have access to through our Five Eyes partnerships. Now that you've heard from David Johnston, and now that you know what was written in different reports, whether it be in the Global Mail or Global News, what, what picture emerges here then, do you, do you think? Because I think David Johnston didn't come out right out and say it, but he sort of alluded to the fact that he thought that that what was reported, at least in some of those reports, was incorrect, and others was perhaps uh, overblown. At the same time, he didn't dismiss them either. So there must be grains of truth in there. It's just hard to, for others, I think, to create a full picture of what we now understand. Right. So Mr. Johnson, the first thing that he concluded in the first thing he said during his press conference today is that foreign interference is a problem and right. that there's a lot of intelligence out there that shows that it's a it, it's a real problem. He also concluded the information that was reported in some media was inaccurate, incomplete and didn't actually uh, precisely reflect what the broader picture was. That was that was in his his reports. And I'm not surprised by that. And I, you know, I, I haven't I haven't been privy to the specific pieces of intelligence that he has, but that broadly rings true to me. But it's also not necessarily relevant uh, in, in terms of the broader uh, broader context, right? Uh, the protection of our democracy, I think, goes beyond just looking at the specifics of national security and intelligence processes in government. It's around people's confidence. And as the prime minister said during his press conference, democracy requires trust. And when there is an absence of trust and whatever the cause of that trust is, uh, lack of trust is, uh, I think that's what we need to address. And that's why I was disappointed uh, that he didn't call for that public inquiry. Right. When we're talking about protecting our democratic institutions, we need a very broad consensus. And the fact that all of the opposition parties have called for an independent inquiry, the fact that the leader of the opposition you know, decided today that he was going to continue his partisan attacks on the process and the content of Mr. Johnson's recommendations. I think all of that points to a need for a different type of process. And I was I was hopeful, maybe naively so, but I was hopeful that a, that an independent inquiry uh, led by someone like a federal court judge, a sitting federal court justice, would have been the way to go because it would have taken the partisan sting out of the conversation, which I think is desperately needed. Arthur Wolczynski is with us this half hour, former Director General of Intelligence and former Assistant Deputy Minister at the CSE. He's a senior fellow at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Arthur, I, I, I agree with you on this because I've, we looked into this already. We talked about this. A public inquiry with the kind of information that we're dealing with here would be tough. 
it would be tough to un- sort of uncover the truth in a public inquiry format. But you're right. It wasn't really about finding out what w- what was said. It was sort of finding out about di- where did the machinations of government not work and for the public to see it being done. Right. I think that it was about that transparency. And look, uh, you know, would there have been through a public inquiry an opportunity for Canadians to actually themselves see the specific in- pieces of intel that were in question? No. That wouldn't have happened because that that would remain uh, classified. But an inquiry would have been able to uh, examine more closely some of those uh, some of those issues, provide a level of distance between the government and the process that when those conclusions were drawn, that it was, in fact, independent. And again, that's why I thought that someone like a a federal court justice would have been an appropriate uh, person to do it. And they could have drawn similar statements as Mr. Johnson about, but it wouldn't have had the, the same kind of political you know, baggage that, unfortunately, Mr. Johnson is coming with. And I think that that would have been important. It also would have enabled uh, sort of the second phase of work, which Mr. Johnson calls for in his report, but has all these important questions around, you know, intelligence, the effect on diaspora communities, what happens at different levels. All those questions are absolutely essential. And I think he's bang on when he says that we need to look at them. I'm just concerned that we're going to spend the next number of months listening to partisan critiques of his process instead of actually paying attention to what needs to be done, which is, again, to take uh, appropriate measures to mitigate the threats that are coming to the next election. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I think we, we, we know and have a level of, 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 of transparency already around what happened in 2019 and 2021, and no one is questioning the outcomes of those elections. But we need to be ready for what's coming. And technology is evolving. The, the tactics and, and strategies used by the opponents of democracy, whether or not they're state actors like the People's Republic of China, Iran, Russia, their techniques are evolving. And we need to be ready and resilient to, uh, to withstand those attacks on our democratic institutions. Yeah, you're right. Because right now it feels like without one, and because I mean, David Johnston doesn't matter what you think of David Johnston, he his credibility has been called into question, and so so you know the the official opposition does not take this recommendation or or this report seriously, uh, for better or worse. Uh, other Canadians will look at it the same way. I don't think calling him you know a ski buddy of Trudeau's is necessarily fair, but that doesn't matter either. Uh, but you're right. Then we end up looking at this through a partisan prism for the next six months instead of tackling some of these very fundamental problems that we have. Right. And, and, and I think that the only one who wins with that kind of process are the opponents of democracy. I, I really regret the collateral damage done to people like Mr. Johnson or Morris Rosenberg and others who, have, who are dedicated public servants who have given their lives to public service in Canada. But, you know, I, we're, I deal with reality, right? Like one of the things that you learn in national security is you, you can't hope for something. You got to deal with what you're actually presented with. And the reality is, is that there are a large number of Canadians, upwards of 15, 20%, which is a lot, a lot of Canadians who have fundamental concerns about the impartiality of the special rapporteur. And again, this is why I thought that the, that the, an independent inquiry would have helped at least mitigate or make more difficult the kind of partisan quips that the opposition, in particular Mr. Polyev, has been throwing at this process. Artur, as always, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the time.
every once in a while, we like to sort of go and see what's happening in Ukraine because, of course, the war continues there. Uh, there's been some big developments of late. There was the G7 meeting. Uh, the President Vladimir Zelensky showed up to that, uh, and there were some big promises made. He met with leaders who haven't been very supportive of Ukraine, of remain neutral in this war, and some have accused him not being too neutral. Um, and he spoke to leaders such as that of Brazil and India, Narendra Modi, and so on. And he was also promised, I mean, one of the big announcements that came out of uh, was training on F-16s, right? For the first time, uh, the Americans okayed training for Ukrainian pilots on F-16s, meaning other countries that have American F-16s can now sell them to uh, Ukraine, which is a big deal as well. At the same time, I don't know if you've seen this over the last few days, there's something going on inside of Russia. Russia's military said Thursday it quashed what appeared to be one of the most serious cross-border attacks from Ukraine since the war began, claiming to have killed more than 70 attackers in a battle that lasted around 24 hours. This all happened in an area called Belgorod. Um, now, the Ukrainians say it has nothing to do with us. These are just, you know, these are domestic Russian anti-Putin people. Uh, but here, have a listen to some more details on it. Explosions and thick smoke rising over Belgorod. Military armored personnel carriers seen near a badly damaged building in video circulating online. Russian nationals from an anti-Putin group, which has links in Ukraine, claiming responsibility for the attack. The group calling itself the Liberty of Russia Legion. Russia blaming Ukraine, Ukraine calling it Russian resistance and denying involvement. So lots to chew on there. To help us with that is Michael Borsicki. He's a global affairs analyst, a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. He's been on the show before. Michael, welcome back. Thank you. My pleasure to be here, Ben. Uh, the, the headlines coming out of uh, Belgorod are are fascinating because it's hard to make sense of what's happening, but it appears as if there's some sort of insurrection going on inside Russia. And that has massive implications, If, if it's, but we can't really tell what's happening. I mean, there are conflicting reports coming out uh, right now. But what we do know is there is uh, some kind of incursions going on. And according to Ukrainian media telegram channels, it's spread to other little towns around the bigger city. And there was no resistance, which would be very, very interesting. Now, the two groups that have been uh, identified as being behind these incursions are not known to us, folks who uh, follow the region pretty closely. But this could be a turning point moment for Mr. Putin if this continues to happen. If it starts to spread, this could represent a major challenge to him. And don't forget, this is all happening at a time when Russian armed forces are very stretched very thinly along the Ukrainian front line. As you, everyone knows, they've not been performing well there. So their ability to, to fight this down is questionable. They have said that they're going to suppress it. You know, when a, when the Russian government says we're going to suppress something, they usually do it with a sledgehammer. So it could be pretty, pretty messy for folks there. But when, once again, um, this could represent uh, the beginning of something much, much bigger. This past weekend in uh, New York at the Ukrainian Journalist Association conference, I did put it to Ukraine's ambassador to the UN. UN Will we ever see the end of Mr. Putin or will we see him behind bars on the Hague? And what he said was very, very interesting. He said, my prediction is that the Mr. Putin's end will come as the regime implodes. He thinks it could probably happen by assassination. People turning on Mr. Putin because Mr. Putin is basically now the czar of Russia. He owns everything in sight. The oligarchs are puppets. If there comes a point where people are either fed up with the war or they see their 
treasures or their income being you know reduced because of the war, this could end up very badly for him. Right. If we look at what's happening in, in Belgorod, for people who don't know where it is, it's only about 80 kilometers from Kharkiv, right? I mean, it's a border city or a border area uh, with Ukraine. And there's a lot of, back in the day, there was tons of cross-border interaction right. between here. Right. So it very is, I mean, it's not like there's a wall or anything, right? Just so people understand. Yeah, yeah exactly. But it's a very sensitive area because it is a border region. Now, when I was with the OSC, we had a separate OSC border observation mission with people actually on the Russian side, but the Russians never allowed us to um, see much of what's going on. But also this city is the same place where a few weeks ago, the Russian uh, Air Force allegedly dropped a bomb by mistake, yeah. you know, right in the middle of the city. So um, a lot of, you know, a lot of interesting bits and pieces is happening that uh, does put serious question marks over uh, Mr. Putin's ability to control things domestically, internally. Right. And uh, there's been some other, I mean, a lot, there's a lot of military there now, right? And of course, there were a lot of Ukrainian refugees that left Eastern Ukraine to head right. into that area. So it's been a quite a volatile region for a bit. What if, what has Ukraine said about all this? Because they're, they're saying this has nothing to do with us, right? They have, as I said this morning, that, you know, we, we have to look at all possibilities and scenarios, but this could be part of the counteroffensive. And if it is, it's a very brilliant strategy. You know, you hit Russia, where it's weakest here and there on both sides of the border. So but they're not um, they're not associating themselves with this. It could be very well pro-Ukrainian, anti-Putin saboteurs, if you want to put, call them that, or combatants who are, who are doing this independently. It's really too early to tell. The the diplomatic uh, implications of this, though, could be quite, uh, quite drastic. I mean, clearly, that has always been the red line for for Putin and the Kremlin, which is mm-hmm, attacks right. within Russia. And we, I mean, when the F-16s, we can talk about that, too, when all the F-16 stuff was happening at the G-7, one of the big concerns was them being used to attack inside Russia. That's always been sort of the most sensitive spot. And yet here we are reading reports of stuff happening inside Russia. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the F-16s do have longer range. They're very powerful machines. They can do air-to-air, air-to-ground targeting. There is nervousness in Washington about Kiev using Western kit to attack with, with inside Russia. But, you know, it isn't terrorism being fought with terrorism. It isn't. It's Ukraine using its ability to legitimately defend itself uh, on a war that it did not start. And I, I think Ukraine has every right to strike targets that are being used to fire missiles from Russia into Ukraine. Uh, they totally um, have the right to do that, and they should use that capability. You're just back from uh, from Odessa as well, and you were mentioning just some of what's changed over the past little while. The, the, the air defenses have been uh, – the, the new, more robust air defenses that Ukraine now has have been a bit of a game changer, but you, you mentioned it's still, it's still not uh, easy sleeping anywhere in the country, in many parts of the country right now. That's correct. I mean, Odessa isn't that as bad as Kiev, where a lot of my friends are having a very difficult time getting rest. The Russians are tending to strike in the middle of the night when people are at their most vulnerable – and this is happening repeatedly. I think it's we can also turn this as psychological war- warfare, you know, uh, wearing people down. But it boggles the mind that Russia still has the capability to do what it's doing with the missiles and with the drones. That's a lot of firepower, which we would have expected exhausted by now. And then on the Ukrainian side, it does take a lot of gunpowder, so to speak, to shoot these things down. And uh, it's a very expensive operation. So uh, over the weekend, there was a little bit of discussion about Israel playing a more robust role in terms of helping Ukraine close the skies to these missiles. 
uh, perhaps uh, Israel providing its Iron Dome system to key cities in Ukraine. That isn't happening yet, but I think behind the scenes, the Israelis may be playing more of a role than they think that, than we think they are. Michael Borsicu, Global Affairs Analyst, Senior Fellow with the Atlantic Council, is with us this half hour. We're talking about the latest events out of Ukraine. It's been a very eventful 96 hours or so. Uh, what did you make of Vladimir Zelensky's appearance uh, at the G7? It seemed like a very a big deal. There were some commitments made. Uh, there was mm-hmm. some diplomacy going on on the side with countries who sort of remained neutral over time, Brazil, India, and so on, Indonesia, Vietnam. Well, talk about a head-spinning travel schedule. I mean, he was in Saudi Arabia, and then from there, he went to Japan on a plane lent to him by Emmanuel Macron of France. Uh, But it was really quite something to see Zelensky standing shoulder to shoulder with the club, the leaders of the Club of Richest Nations. And um, there's never been a time when Ukraine has has, had had such incredible visibility and clout, I would say. I think he felt it was necessary to look people eye to eye, world leaders, and uh, say to them, we need, this is what we need, and we need it now. Uh, also, is an opportunity, of course, for him to sit down with uh, Mr. Modi of India. That probably was a bit of an uncomfortable conversation. But again, really important for him to tell India, now is the time for you to get off the fence and support Ukraine. You see India and Russia have a kind of alliance going back to the Brezhnev era, where they allied themselves to stand up against China. But um, I, I think that particular arrangement is... Uh, it's past due date, uh, it should be expired, and that uh, India should side with uh, with Ukraine, as should um, uh, Vietnam. They were there, Indonesia and Brazil. Look, the Russians have weaponized food. They've been doing this for quite some months. That has resulted in a lack of grain, Ukrainian grain, sunflower oil, other foodstuffs. It raised prices around at the checkout counter around the world, including these particular countries that I mentioned. So now is the time to team up with Ukraine, Western allies stop the war, and then the food situation will level itself nicely and in no time. It's been interesting to see how sort of BRICS countries or the so-called what used to be known as the non-aligned have, have reacted to this because they very judiciously tried to stay out of it. And and it's been interesting to watch because, you know, that's a big chunk of the world's population in these countries who sort of view this war somehow as something apart from what they should be interested in, which is, and here we are, you know, a year and a half later, and they're still, they still think that way. Yeah. And, you know, in the case of India, now the world's most populous country, uh, it has a huge appetite for resources and energy. So, of course, it w- will want to buy discounted um, energy oil from from Russia. But again, um, it is it is through this manner funding Putin's war machine. I think at the end of the day, the Russians only care about themselves. I'm talking about the government. The reason I say that, again, Ben, is because the degree to which they've weaponized food, the only reason I think this Black Sea grain grain agreement came about was because allies of Russia probably said, you know, like Egypt and others, hey, you know, we're really suffering here. Uh, You're making our lives very difficult. But yet they continue to extend the deal only by two months. They continue to tie up ships in Istanbul port, Russian inspectors. It, It should be pretty clear to people by now on which side they should be standing on. Right. Uh, it's something that big happened here today. We've been talking about foreign influence or allegations of foreign in- influence in Canadian politics, Canadian elections. Uh, it's something we used to talk about a lot in reference to Russia. We do so less now, which is odd considering Russia's in the middle of a war and would you think would have their 
you know, their information uh, tactics or, or, you know, information war tactics on uh, at their highest level. Um, but today, an interesting was pointed out that no Russian diplomats have been have been kicked out of Canada, as far as I can tell. And uh, that that still continues to surprise, doesn't it, in some ways, because I, I don't quite know what what function they serve in this country. Yeah, uh, well, I'll tell you what kind of function they serve. Their function they serve is the one the direct following the directives of the Kremlin, and that's to cause as much destabilization as possible to be purveyors of misinformation, fake news, especially on social media. You don't believe me? Just go to the Twitter uh, account to the Russian embassy. Oh, in yeah. yeah, the dirt that comes yeah. out of there. Yeah. So I don't know, Ben. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe Moscow is sending Boy Scout diplomats, Russian diplomats to Canada, and they're all on their best behavior. But, um, <laughs> you know, it. it I, I, Canada should follow the lead of European countries and expel Russian diplomats. The time has come for that. I think Minister Jolie, Prime Minister Trudeau should both uh, grow the spine and do it. Yes, Russia will retaliate by expelling Canadians, but I think we have to show them that we're tough, that uh, we'll teach them a lesson, that what they do, these nefarious activities, will not be uh, tolerated in Canada. And yet it feels like, I mean, and you know this, it feels so different from the way we've approached the Chinese allegations, which are which are sort of far broader about bringing in diaspora communities, about sort of funding candidates right, and right. so on. The Russian one seems to be far more direct. It's a misinformation campaign, right? Yeah, and we have to remember, too, what Russia did on British soil, actually killing British uh, citizens with, Indeed. you know, industrial and industrial grade uh, nuclear stuff or poison. So they're they're capable of doing this. They will do it again. It just boggles the mind. And then also um, a lot of Russians, uh, if I'm not mistaken, still own a lot of expensive property in places like Toronto, Bridal Path, elsewhere. Uh, it's time a crackdown happened on that as well. We may probably look at as well um, Russian nationals coming into Canada. Who are they? What are they doing? Uh, that sort of thing. A lot can still be done. And Ben, just if I can, um, I was recently in Warsaw, and I think symbolism is very important. So I go to the Canadian embassy in Warsaw, which is one of the biggest by far in the region. You you pass the Greek embassy. It's plastered with Ukrainian flags. You pass the French embassy almost right across the street. All kinds of Ukrainian stuff on it. U.S. Embassy, pretty much next door. Also, Polish government buildings plastered with Ukrainian stuff. Nothing on the Canadian embassy. Really? So what what are these Ukrainians supposed to think who are getting their emergency visas, which, by the way, are taking a long time, come to the embassy and they see no symbol of support whatsoever for Ukraine? There's something a bit strange going on there. What do you think it could be? Because because it felt like for a while there were Ukrainian flags everywhere, and all it of a did, sudden, it did, yeah, um, it did, especially in Warsaw, where you were right, maybe less so now, but many Ukrainians for the first time they'll encounter a Canadian official will be there, right? Right, and there, there's nothing to be seen. So um, I, I don't know. Um, a lot of folks say uh, Global Affairs Canada is a very interesting mindset these days when it comes to the work they're doing overseas. Hard to say. Hard to say. Well, Michael, as always, thanks for the update. I appreciate it. Most uh, most welcome. Anytime, Ben. Bart, isn't there something you'd like to say to your sister? Okay. I'm sorry, too. No, no, no. That won't do at all. Yeah, boy, get down on your knees and beg for forgiveness. Yeah, beg me, Bart. Beg me. Lisa, I beg of you. Please forgive me. (laughs) 
Now we can blame him for everything. It's your fault, I'm bald. I'm sorry. It's your fault, I'm old. I'm sorry. It's your fault, I can't talk. I'm sorry. It's your fault, America has lost its way. I'm sorry. It's all your fault. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's a Bart Simpson nightmare about saying sorry, but it does hammer home just how tough it can be to apologize. What's odd about Canadians, and I include myself in all this, is that I say sorry all the time. If you bump into someone, you open the door and someone's on the other side in your office building, you say sorry. If you accidentally sort of bump into someone at the grocery store, you say sorry. And yet, when it comes to the deepest, most needed apologies, the ones that you should really be considering, the ones that are kind of life-changing apologies, things you may have done wrong in the past or whatever, the things you probably already know what I'm talking about. Those are the ones that we have such a hard time with when there's a lot on the line. We seem to be able to say sorry for all kinds of little things, but not be able to say sorry or apologize for the really big things. We become defensive and guarded and combative and all those things, right? So learning how to say sorry genuinely can make a tremendous difference. It can be a huge game changer, both for the person offering the apology and even for the person receiving the apology, right? Um, But what word should we choose? There must be a way of doing it, right? There must be a way of tackling an apology in a way that makes sense. Well, Marjorie Ingall uh, is the co-author, alongside Susan McCarthy, of a book called Sorry, 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 The Case for Good Apologies. The paperback about to be released is called Getting to Sorry, if you happen to see a different name on it. And to help us with figuring out how to apologize properly, Marjorie Ingall joins me now from New York City. Marjorie, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much for having us. Me, just me. Just you. Yes, your co-author your, your co <laughs> is not here with us. But it's an interesting time to put this book out because it feels like there's such a trend now to not even apologize for anything. It doesn't matter if you've done wrong or not. The kind of the Trumpian forget the apology, right? Tell me a bit about the inspiration for this. Uh, Susan and I are both longtime journalists and friends. And I used to live in San Francisco, where she is, and then I moved to New York, and we were looking for a project to collaborate on. And we had both written a lot about apologies, and we both were amazed at the legs that these pieces got, that people were really interested in talking about them. So we started a website called sorrywatch.com, which we called the Apology Watchdog website. And at first, we really spent a lot of making fun of bad celebrity and politician apologies. But the longer this is now, we've been doing it for over a decade now, and we're not bored. And I think one reason is because we've started looking harder into research on apology and wanting to talk about good apologies. As you mentioned in 2016, uh, I think there was a greater interest in people refusing to apologize at all for any reason. And so the book is really the apotheosis of all that we have learned about good apologies, bad apologies, why we don't want to apologize, the brain and apologies, and how incredibly healing a good apology can be right and and how incredibly destructive a bad one could be which is which is why it's such i I think people avoid it because it's such a tightrope it is a tightrope and a bad apology is almost always worse than no apology so we are sympathetic to you know the notion of not apologizing because a apologizing is freaking terrifying and b the brain is not designed to make it easy for us. We are going against some of our deepest animal instincts when we apologize well. Right. That sort of sense of survival, right? Of trying to 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 make sure that our our 
view of the world remains intact because when you apologize you're essentially fundamentally saying i got it wrong yes and when we you know we, we are designed to see ourselves as good people that's a survival strategy that's how we make our way in the world and often when we are faced with the kind of cognitive dissonance of I know I'm a good person, but I did a bad thing. We resolve it in our own favor. Uh, they did something even worse. Uh, they don't really expect me to apologize. It really wasn't that big a deal. So go people who are willing to apologize and take that risk. You, you've you in the book, you make it quite, um, you, you, there's a bit of a handy guide. I think it's, well, there's six and a half, six. Yes. Six and a half ways to a good apology, ways to a good apology. And it starts with the simplest of moves. Yes. Just say the words, I'm sorry, or I apologize. And you would be stunned at how difficult that is for many people. They go with, you know, I regret, I feel terrible. Even I would like to apologize. Don't like, just do. And that's why we say that these six and a half steps, you know, they're so easy a seven-year-old can do them, and they are so rich and complex that, you know, a 68-year-old politician should do them. You know, they work for everyone. And it's interesting that when we're young, we're taught to apologize. We tend to have, and we and we realize how hard it is to apologize when we're kids, when you're told by your parents, go say you're sorry, you did something wrong, and you 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 protest. And we're, yeah. and, and we're and we forced to have, do it. We often yeah. haven't seen our own parents apologize well. You know, I remember holding on to my brother, my little brother on the floor and thinking, mom and dad are breaking up. And then the next day, everything's fine. So we don't yeah. see the modeling of good apologies. And as you said, we're like ordered to apologize often without interest in whether we were the wronged party, without any interest in nuance. It just seems like, let's just get get this done, get the bad feelings gone. And you can't shove bad feelings under the rug. Interesting. We're not taught to apologize properly. So saying sorry, uh, saying you're sorry or apologizing is is one. Be specific, you talk about as well. And show yeah. why you understand, like you understand why exactly. you, what you did was bad. Yeah. So number one is say you're sorry. Number two, say the thing that you did. You know, it's not the situation or what happened last week or actions taken by my administration. Right. Say the thing. Like people often email, you know, we're on social media and people will email or tweet at us about bad apologies. And if we have to go look up what an apology is for, uh, it is not a good apology. Right. You know, an apology has to be specific, as you say. And that really um, leads into number three, right? Which is sh- that shows you understand why it was bad. Yes. Show that you understand the impact on the other person. We tend to make it all about us. You know, and uh, that which also leads into number four, don't make excuses. You can explain if it's, you know, I was late because the bus was the bus didn't come. That's okay, But be very careful when it becomes this litany of why, why I had to do it, why you deserved it. And then that leads into number five, say why it won't happen again. I will make sure I leave enough time next time. You know, the entire staff is going to take uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion training, not right. just the f- customer facing people, but all the way up the chain. And then number six is if you can make an offer of repair, you know, make a donation to the person's charity. And then the number six and a half is maybe in some ways the hardest one, which is listen, let the other person have their say, don't interrupt. 
Yeah, because oftentimes you you issue your apology and, and hope just to walk away, right? I mean, that's yes. kind of the uh, yes, uh, yes, which is which is a natural, a natural, a natural desire because it's yeah. hard, right? Appreciate like knew- how hard this was for me, but then yeah. you're making the then you're making the mistake. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, certainly I'd heard the term toxic positivity before writing this book, <laughs> but there's also it, while writing the book, I learned about spiritual bypassing, which is when you just want you know the intentions are good, you want to get to the good spiritual feeling. But you can't bypass all all the yucky, icky, hard stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, reading it, I was I was struck by sort of the idea that, and this applies to so many things. That really the key is to be short, sweet, and sincere, right? That that that's yeah. kind of and yeah, if you do that said, for anything, yeah, it kind of works. I mean, the hardest part. It's like I well, I've never actually jumped out of a plane with a parachute on, but I imagine <laughs> that the hardest part is stealing yourself to do it. Once it's out of your hands, once you've made the leap. Um, I think in some ways it's easier. We we say in the book, apologies are mandatory, forgiveness is not. Mm-hmm. So you might say, I'm not going to apologize because they're not going to forgive me. That doesn't matter. The apology is about them, but the way it makes you feel is about you and you will feel more purified. It won't weigh on you. Marjorie Ingle is with us this half hour, co-author of Sorry, 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 The Case for Good Apologies, alongside Susan McCarthy. Getting to Sorry will be the paperback title uh, for the book. Marjorie, you mentioned you have some examples in your book of, of when of, of the power of a good apology and some of the ways you can go you go about doing it. The idea of and we went through the six and a half things you should remember, but also the idea of no expectation, right? Like you're not apologizing for the forgiveness. You're apologizing to right a wrong or trying to right a wrong. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Um, Susan and I, again, you know, Susan and I are journalists. We are not crisis communication counselors. We are not PR people. And often when celebrities and politicians are told to apologize, it is because it is important for their jobs. It is because it is important for their income. Uh, It is because it is important for reelection. Our focus is on how do we make our relationships with the people in our actual lives richer and fuller, well-rounded and healthy. And that's a thing that a good apology can do. Yeah, and, and you, you've been talking about. Uh, I mean, we, we talked about how oftentimes with politicians, uh, it seems like you know they're, they're not sorry for what they did; they're sorry for getting caught. And you right. can tell, you can tell, right? And that sort of cheapened the apology in some way because exactly. people, people are a lot more prone to apologize now for certain things, but they never apologize like they actually mean it. No, and that's that's often where regret comes in. I'm trying to think of a, of an actual political apology right now. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, our prime minister had to apologize for being for pictures of him turning up in blackface many years ago. Sure. Uh, you know, and, and he I, sort of apologized. So but yeah. He did. To your prime minister's credit, he does seem to want to apologize. But, you know, saying something like, I regret the release of the pictures, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, that's not saying I'm sorry I wore blackface. I don't know. I don't actually remember the, the phrasing of his actual apology. He, did, but he, he was about pretty how clear. I feel, and apologies are about how your constituents feel. Indeed. Or should, a good apology should be about how your constituents feel. The bad apology is one that I was interested in, too, because you you compared it to the cover up is worse than the crime. And yeah. and I think that's interesting that 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 in in a situation where you should apologize, a bad apologize can just reinforces reinforce people's uh, impression that you've done something really bad. 
Right. And that you're not genuinely sorry. One of the chapters looks at medical apologies. And we all know that doctors have a history of being really bad at apologizing, perhaps because of the advice they get from their hospital's legal teams. Right. But what people want in a case of medical malpractice, there is there is research on this. People want to feel heard. They want to feel like their suffering was not for no reason. And they want to know that this won't happen to somebody else. So if you actually offer them a sincere apology and say, here's what went wrong, here's what we're doing to fix it, you know, you may forestall a lawsuit by apologizing well, but if it does end up in a court, juries tend to be much more forgiving when there are good apologies involved. I guess it's important to understand what kind of apologizer you are to, how predispositioned you are to apologize, to then look at how those steps apply to you. Right. Women are often accused of apologizing too much. I think that we should think about how to get men to apologize more. You know, I wouldn't police people for, you know, oh, you apologize too much. Right. And as a Canadian, of course, you know that our stereotype is <laughs> apologizing exactly. all the time, right? We use sorry as punctuation. <laughs> you and the Brits. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Does that is that off putting for, for if you're American if you're from a different culture because I think people come to this country and they don't understand why you're apologizing and then they start to think well wait a second if you apologize so easily do you actually me- ever mean it that's really funny I never thought of that you know I only see it as an American who is envious of your fluid and friendly apology culture because um, <laughs> I think we would be better off if we were a little more knee jerk in our apologies but then also took the step to when it is called for, look deeper and make a more, a less pro forma a kind of apology. Well, Marjorie, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on the success of the book as well. I think it, it certainly you. shows there's a void, there's a void out there and we need this stuff. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Cabbage. Let's talk about cabbage. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I like cabbage rolls growing up. I've got nothing against cabbage. I don't buy it much. I mean, I don't cook with it much, right? I think it's one of those ones that hangs over from your childhood, right? There's a lot of things that I no longer put on that list. Like I will eat liver. I don't mind it at all. I like Brussels sprouts. They taste much better than they used to. But cabbage is one of those ones. I I think I just don't know what to do with it because it's so big. (laughs) You sort of carry this four pound thing home with you. But it is inexpensive, still relatively, not as much as it used to be. And my next guest says it's a little gift from the universe that far too many of us overlook. And what happened was during the pandemic, she knew of a farm that had all these surplus cabbage because there were no tourists coming in, so no coleslaw was being made. So she thought, well, what could you do to help them out? Uh, So she's a retired CBC broadcaster and writer who lives in Charlottetown. Her name is Anne Thurlow. And she decided to start a Facebook page about this. And next thing you knew, she got, you know how these things happen. It was incredibly popular. People loved it. People loved talking about cabbage. Why not? Um, and then that became a book, uh, you know, a little book called the PEI Cabbage, uh, sorry, the PEI Cabbage Club is what she started on Facebook. And then, and then the book was called the My PEI Cabbage Cookbook. And it was just a pretty, like, she just put it together fairly quickly, got some other recipes people had sent in and, you know, and the next thing you know, um, something incredible happens and it ends up in the New York Times. I'll let her tell the story because it's even cooler. And let me preface this by saying that. Anne's husband was the person who I believe signed my first ever check in broadcasting. Because back when I was a young kid, my mom was a producer at the CBC for a while. And there was this kid show called Anybody Home. 
And I did a few reports over a couple of years for the maybe five or six reports over the years. Um, and Anne's husband was my producer. <laughs> So, or at least he approved the paychecks. So we have this really old connection, and she remembered my name from way back then and brought it up uh, before we before we did the interview. Um, so Anne Thurlow, with no further, without any further ado, Anne Thurlow, writer and author of My PEI Cabbage Cookbook. And thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for asking. Before we get started, I should I should mention that Anne and I have a very uh, interesting and old connection from the very first radio I ever did as a child. My mother was a producer at the CBC, and there was a kids show called Anybody Home, and I did some work for them. And uh, Anne's husband was a, was a, a producer on the show, and yet so here we are, here we are, forty years later, I think it is. I know he filled out he filled out the stub so you could get paid. So <laughs> there you go. He practically owns your success. He does. He does. He was my first. He was, that was my first paid journalism job. It was there you great. go. This is a great story, Anne, about about the, the the cabbage cookbook. And I gather, like all great things, it started small. With what was the, what was the genesis of of sort of wanting to focus a bit on on the perhaps underappreciated cabbage? Well, what happened was during the pandemic, my friend Tanya McKenzie from the McKenzie Produce Farm, where they grow a lot of cabbage was bemoaning the fact that they were didn't know what they were going to do with their cabbage because most of the cabbage was sold to summer touristy restaurants for coleslaw. Right. And I thought, well, I mean, that's a shame because I don't want any see anybody do badly, but there's like a million other things you could do with cabbage. So I started up a little Facebook page just to kind of amuse myself and other people about cabbage. What do you like about cabbage? What recipes do you like? To my amazement, it took off. Gosh, if there's that much interest in cabbage, maybe we could have a book. So I did a book, again, expecting that it was going to be something fun and light and frivolous, which the book is. But if I could sell 200 copies, then I'd think, well, look at me. I wrote a book and sold 200 copies. Right. And that, my friend, was way, way, way lower than what actually happened. It really turned into to quite the success. Tell me a bit about how it went from even from the Facebook page to the book, and then we we'll talk a bit about the New York Times in a second because that really kind of you know exposed it to a huge audience. But there was obviously a real interest there in 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 cabbage. And what did you find? You must you must have got some interesting communication. Well, there were so many people. I'm not even kidding. There were so many people who were interested. And number one, people were interested because. They became very nostalgic about cabbage, which is oh, wow. funny. Yes. Oh, I remember when my grandma used to make cabbage and it was so delicious. And my grandma made sauerkraut. We have right. a couple of recipes like that. Or my grandma made this or that or the other thing. And this, so that was part of it. And then part of it was people often not North American, uh, you know, to begin with, used cabbage for all kinds of things. It was really uh, considered to be like a staple of the household as opposed to something that you used every once in a while. And that really kind of floored me because I love cabbage myself. I wrote at the very beginning of the book a whole history of my great love affair with cabbage, which I felt was a bit odd, truthfully, at the time. But it turns out that there was all these people who loved cabbage. So I thought at that point... 
that, you know, this is something that we could really share. And I thought a book would be a better way to do it than a Facebook page because it would get out there, and which is true. It has. It did. I loved cabbage rolls as a kid. That was someone who, like, it's one of those things that sound of, it does sit in a spot where, where it's nostalgia, right? And I guess part of the yeah. issue with cabbage is so many people have had it done badly over the years. Yes. That people sort of had yeah. this image of it as not being very tasty. And then you have something like, you have good cabbage and it's delicious. Where did your sort of love of cabbage begin? Where it really actually began was when I was a little girl, because a very little girl, which was a very long time ago, but my mom, we lived, we grew up in Maine, and every Saturday we had baked beans because that's what you do, and hot dogs and cabbage salad. Uh-huh. We, we didn't call it coleslaw. In fact, I never even heard of coleslaw. We called it cabbage salad, and what it was was cabbage, which went through this big grinder that my mom had a. a hand-turned grinder, um, and then mayonnaise was added and salt and pepper. And with the beans and the the hot dogs, it was just, to my mind, it was the most delicious thing in the whole wide world. And the and cabbage so I, was an important part of it, right? I mean, that was one of the, it was the crunchy part of that meal. That was the crunchy part of that meal. It was yeah. the nice, I mean, the beans are soft and kind of sweet. It was delightful. And I knew, I, I mean, that kind of sealed the deal for me if there was ever a deal to be sealed. I didn't use it a lot for a long time, but I was never averse to it. I loved it. Right. And, and then you went out purposely as well to try and find from other cultures, just to show that, you know, like so much of Canada, PI has become a diverse place. And what, yes. what other people's memories of cabbage were, because I, I was just watching something not long ago about, you know, a, a Korean family making kimchi and what a, what a yes. ritual it is and how much work goes into it and how important it is. Yes. And there, you, had, you collected many of those stories. I did. I have a lovely kimchi recipe. Something that's interesting that many people don't know about PEI is we have a, a large number of Buddhist nuns who live here on PEI. I didn't know that. Well, you did not know that. I did anyway, not know so they're, they're lovely, lovely women, very, very generous and very community minded. Anyway, and they're also good cooks. So I asked them if they would be interested. And so they delivered to me three really good, including a kimchi recipe from their culture. And then a guy called David Ross wrote this lovely little memoir. Like the the cookbook is just what people sent to me. It isn't one of those, it isn't curated. Right. It's a collection of recipes. Anyway, this wonderful guy, David Ross, sent me a lovely story about meeting Edna Struble, who wrote a book called Food That Really Schmecks. It was about Mennonite food. And she had a recipe for cabbage chocolate cake. Oh, wow. That's, I've never heard of that. Well, it, too bad for you is all I can say, Ben, because it is try. so good. It's both, it uses sauerkraut, really, and it makes the cake so moist and oh, so wow. delicious. And you can't, you know how sa- sauerkraut's a little salty and salty, just salt, I mean, just adds to the flavor of things. And so you don't taste anything cabbagey. It's just very rich, intense cake. Um, there was another really funny story about a woman whose friend made huge quantities of, of sauerkraut using a canoe paddle. 
<laughs> can't get more Canadian than that. <laughs> yeah, I know. So there, there are those kind of stories. I mean, I encourage people to write stories if there was a story to be told. And a friend of mine, who also has a smaller cabbage farm, wrote a wonderful little essay about a cabbage recipe that she made. She mentioned her mother, and her mother was a dear friend of mine, a person I loved very much. So that was just kind of really nice. It was very homey and folksy. I like that kind of thing. I like that this is really home cooking from the heart. Yeah, and you weren't alone. I mean, Sam Sifton is a huge name for listeners who don't know who that is. He writes for the New York Times, and he's sort of much followed. So you sent him a copy of your book, right? You sort of said, hey, you might might like this. And next thing you know, and next thing you know, it's, it's in the New York Times. Well, that could not have surprised me more. Really, honestly, I wanted him to send me an email. I wanted him to send me an email that said, thanks, Anne. And I'd be going, oh, my God, I heard from Sam Sifton, and I would brag about it all of my life. But no, he, and I didn't know he did this. My friends called me or emailed me and said, guess what? Sam Sifton called your book his new favorite cookbook. I'm like, pshaw, he did not, ha ha, but he did, because apparently what Sam Sifton says goes. So we started getting orders, and at that point I turned, thank goodness, I turned the uh, distribution over to the lovely people at Vessie Seeds, and Vessie Seeds called and said, What's going on? <laughs> Why are we getting so many? His exact quote was, a new favorite cookbook from Prince Edward Island in Canada, my PEI cabbage cookbook by yeah. Anne Thurlow. There it is in black and white, all the news that's fit to print. <laughs> was, yeah. Wow. Wow. That's cool. I know. It was really something. I mean, and, and at Bessie's, they were getting orders from New York and Kansas. Like, how did anybody here hear about me? They wondered. So I told them. So what happened was, the cookbook really took off at that point. And then the unlikeliness of this relationship, and I cannot emphasize enough to you, Ben, <laughs> how unlikely it is that a sophisticated, smart man like Sam Sifton would end up helping out a really, I am a little old lady, and it really he really helped me, like tremendously. So that story, the beauty of that story has become a story kind of unto itself, as well as the cabbage cookbook and everything else. Indeed. And all for a good cause, too. Our listeners should know that, that all of this is going to a good cause. It is going to an amazing cause, I have to say. Um, it's a place called Blooming House, and the, the house is a shelter for women who don't have homes. They can go there and spend the night and have a shower and wash their clothes. And it's the most wonderful place because it was started by these two young women who just kind of looked at each other and said, why is there no shelter for homeless women? Which was a very, very good question. And their own convictions got this place going. And now not only did they help the women who go there, for the night, they help the women who want to move on to find apartments and to figure their lives out and to connect them with the people who can help them. And I think that's a really, really important part of tackling this hard question of homelessness. Um, I admire them and I love them. And I'm really, really pleased to be able to give them money. 
Well, Anne, what a journey from one Facebook page about cabbage to all of this. I know. Uh, it must, it I know. must be, it must be thrilling in its own way, and and and, and for the good cause too. I mean, it, there's so many good things about it. It, it is the whole thing is thrilling. It has taken over my life. I must say, I th- had picture of, you know, my old age. I would sit and quietly read novels and, you know, whatever we do. And but this is all I do is talk about the book and. <laughs> Promote the book and talk about cabbage and la da da da. da. I, I'm not. This is not a complaint. Let me tell you, not a complaint. No. I could not be happier. I am thrilled by all of this. Thrilled. Well, and thank you so much for sharing that great story with us today. I appreciate it. Well, it's so very nice to talk to you. 